0: Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pursue God podcast. It's Tuesday, which means it's another day for some systematic theology. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio by Pastor Ross. Ross, last time we talked about the atonement. That was week seven in the series. Today, in week eight of the series, we're going to talk about the elements of salvation. So before we jump into it, let's frame this. So last week, we talked about the work of Christ, what he actually did 2,000 years ago in the atonement. And today we're going to talk about Sort of the benefits of that for us as humans.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like, we, build, building on what, understanding what Jesus did, we're talking about then what happens in the life of someone who is saved? Like, what are, what are kind of the outcomes of the atonement in the person who responds in faith to the work of Christ? Yeah, let's make sure we start even with what, when we talk about salvation, we're talking
0: about um, when, somebody, when somebody trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then in, in the broadest terms, we, we say that that person is saved. In fact, maybe you've talked to somebody before, you say, are you saved? I, I remember sitting at lunch one time with a, with a Christian friend, a pastor, and he looked at the server and said, have you been saved? And sh- her look back to him was like, what are you even talking about? So, right. w- So why don't we define salvation? Certainly Christians listening to this might already have a sense for that, but even their sense might not fully
1: capture it. Right, because, again, it becomes kind of a technical insider word, but what really, word, the word just means to be rescued or delivered, and so, you know, that's we talk about, um, you know, the, the fireman who saved a cat from the tree, or mm-hmm. something like that. That's a generic sense. it means to be rescued or delivered, and so when we're using it in the theological sense, we're talking about um, how the work of Christ is applied to individual persons, but to provide a deliverance from the peril or the need that, that is uh, created by sin. So how do we get delivered from or saved from sin and the secondary consequences of sin in our lives? Right, so if we think about it, if we put it in terms of
0: primary and secondary salvation, the, the primary peril that we were saved from was spiritual, that, that we have a right relationship with God, and we're gonna get into all this today. But then the secondary, is so much more than that, because God doesn't just save us from the consequences of our sins, He actually saves us from other consequences that are maybe a little bit less serious, that are more temporal.
1: Right, but they're all related to sin in some way or another. They are, they're all the effects or overflow of sin in our lives, like guilt and shame, um, or like, you know, alienation from other people. Because we're sinners, we don't get along with other people, um, you know, injustice, violence, and many many different things. Um, that are the overflow of the reality of sin. And, and so, so God is, is saving us from sin and everything that it affects in our lives. Yeah, and you know, you've probably heard before
0: preachers say that we've that we've been saved from the past, the present, and the future, right? So mm-hmm. salvation, when we talk about salvation, where some of these aspects have already been applied, right? There's a there's a sense of the already. And yet, then there's a sense of the not yet. Some mm-hmm. of the benefits of salvation are still to come for us.
1: Right. So, you know, the things that are... We've already been forgiven of our sins, for example. We'll talk about some of these things as we go along, but this is a framework to help us understand those. We've already been forgiven of our sins. That's done. A done deal. But we haven't yet been glorified. We haven't yet... Um, been released from this broken, fallen world, and, and that's in the future to come, our, our physical resurrection to a new kind of life and our eternity with God forever. And then there's the present. The present aspect of it is, is how we experience the um, benefits of salvation, how we live in, and how God works in our lives uh, to grow us, and that's actually the topic that we'll talk about next time. But there's, there is a past, present, future. It's all complete. It's all a done deal in a sense, even though we haven't fully experienced all of the aspects of it yet. Okay, so in this in this episode we're going to be we're going to be
0: sort of diving into some theological words, some terms that maybe some listeners have never heard before, but certainly if you've been to seminary you would have studied these terms. We're going to talk about a word called regeneration and a word called conversion, another one called justification and another one called adoption. And so A lot of these terms have some overlap, but I think it's important when we're talking about sort of the broad brushstrokes of salvation that we dive down into each of these terms. So let's talk about regeneration, and of course that just means being... A lot of people
1: maybe will have heard this colloquially as being born again. Yeah, and the Greek word in the New Testament for this literally is translated born again. And so there's a new birth that takes place where we talked about in, in previous episodes the effects of sin, how we're, we're all born dead because of our transgressions and sins. So there's spiritual death pertains to every human being. This is the act by which a person who is spiritually dead becomes spiritually alive. And something new then is formed and shaped in who we are. Okay, so when
0: Jesus was talking to Nicodemus late at night, John chapter 3, Jesus said to him... You must be born again, and when when he was talking about that, he was. This is maybe we're going to dive into the weeds a little bit on this, Ross. But it, I think it's important for people to understand what was, how did Nicodemus hear that, and how do we how do how do we hear that today? I guess as followers of Jesus, and what are what are some of the complications that might arise around this concept of being born again? Yeah, this, when we talk about like Calvinists and Arminians, because I know there's some. There's some issue
1: related to this, because how does a person get born again, I guess, right, is the question. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. So Nicodemus, first of all, he just thought of it, he thought Jesus was talking in physical terms. He goes, how can I get back in my mother's womb again? And like, you know, at this age, uh, Jesus was talking, he says, no, born of the Spirit, so it's a spiritual rebirth. Um, that, he, and, and Jesus says, look, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. And so... The debate comes in in a phrase that's called the Ordo Salutis. That means that's Latin for the order of salvation. What order do these things logically take place in? Now, there's a very real sense in which regeneration, justification, adoption, all these other things that we that we've been talking about, they're, they're in, there's a in a very real sense they're they're all they all happen at the same time, mm-hmm. but in a logical sense, not a necessarily a temporal sense. Um, disagree about sort of what the logical order of these things is. So Calvinists would say that we're dead in our sins, we have to be regenerated first before we can believe, because a person who's spiritually dead doesn't have the capacity to exercise repentance and faith uh, to respond to the Gospel. So for the Calvinists, regeneration comes before conversion. Mm-hmm. For the Arminian, Regeneration comes after conversion because we're not born again until we respond to, um, and this is where the idea we talked about last week about prevenient grace—that it's the grace of God that's given to all human beings that allows a person to be able to say yes to the gospel before they're before they're uh, regenerate. And so that that's the debate. You know, in practice, you you can see there's certain implications of either view, but in practice, it it looks pretty much exactly the same mm-hmm. in terms of any person's actual experience of coming to faith in Christ. In terms of the personal consciousness, nobody's going like, wait, did I just get regenerated? Okay, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe. Or the other way around. In practice, you're, you're responding to the invitation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit works, and boom, you become born again. How that, how that breaks down is um, you know, debatable and, and again has implications, but I think for most of us, It becomes a little bit academic. So, but in
0: in either case, whether you're wherever you are on that spectrum from Arminian to Calvinist, the process of regeneration isn't a process, it's instantaneous that you're born again in an instant. Right. In other words, it doesn't take a lifetime of good works to be considered born again or born into the family of God it's an instantaneous thing because of the grace of God right but again when we when we dive down into the details of it we we need to talk about the second thing which is this idea of conversion and when a person is converted what are we talking about there
1: yeah this is this is the the moment where the f- switch gets flipped on in a sense mm-hmm. but this is the this is the point where we're talking about what is the individual's response to God's work? Okay, so so whether they, they hear the gospel, whether God has called them uh, to become saved, or whether God is inviting them through the gospel, either way, mm-hmm. this is the this is the place where um, everyone agrees that that the the means on the part of the individual um, for that transition to take place from death to life, uh, from being you know outside to inside, so to speak. That takes place with a human personal response, that's what we call conversion. And there's there's two parts of it uh, biblically: there's repentance and there's faith. Okay, so let's break those two things down and let's
0: let's start with faith. So f- this idea of faith, this, uh, this ability to in our hearts have this attitude of entrusting yourself to the faithfulness of God. Um it, you know, the Scripture talks about this all over the place. You need to believe. You need to trust. You need to have faith. What does that look like on the on the end of the on the on the
1: side of the person, the individual who's exercising that faith? Right. It's uh, you know the the word faith um, in our language, common uh, language today, sometimes it it has the idea of um, just uh, cognitive facts. So we talk about you have to believe. Well, I, be- I believe that Jesus was, was a real person. I believe even that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Well, that's a start. But the, the better way to think of this word from, from its biblical root is to think of trust or reliance To mm-hmm. say, okay, I, I, th- I know these facts are true, and now I'm going to put my trust in those, in those facts or in that truth. Or even better yet, I'm going to put my trust in that person. So, so this idea of faith or trust is really more about trusting a person than it is about trusting the set of ideas. And in this sense, we're saying we're trusting in God, we're trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us. But you have to understand that and believe it first. You have to have knowledge of it, you have to agree with it, and then you come to the place where you're able to rely on that truth or rely on that person.
0: Okay, so let's identify those three elements. I think this is really helpful for people. So it, it, does, it starts with knowledge, mm-hmm. right? A grasp of the truth. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't respond to the gospel message if nobody ever shares the gospel message with right. you. you have, there's knowledge, and, but knowledge, of course, as you understand, is, is not enough by itself, right? It, because it, the demons know right. all the right information, yet they're not they're not saved, obviously. Right. So it's not, or they don't they don't trust. They right. don't trust in Jesus. So it starts with knowledge, grasp of the truth, and then the second thing is assent, a s s e n t. So that is agreeing with the truth. It's right. one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to say, I agree with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, That's true. To say, yes, that that's true. I I, I believe that's true. So you have knowledge, then you have assent, and then finally what you're talking about here is then you can trust. And this Mm -hmm. is where you you have a confidence in or a reliance upon the truth. And again, I think it's important, biblically, Ross, we're talking about not just... The faith response isn't just a response to the information. Right. It's a response to the person.
1: The person, yeah. the person of Jesus. Yeah. Because he is trustworthy. And so we can we can engage our trust in him because he is trustworthy. Okay, so again,
0: we're talking about conversion. And so conversion takes faith, but it also takes this other element called repentance. And repentance is this this attitude, we like to call it the attitude of faith. Mm-hmm. Repentance is, is when, you, when you say, I want to turn from my sin, I want to turn from my way, and I'm going to turn toward Christ and His way and His commandments.
1: Yeah, the two are really two sides of one coin. They're really inseparable, and both of them are, reco- are really necessary for uh, salvation to occur in somebody's life, because in a sense repentance is saying that I'm turning away from trusting in myself. I'm turning away from trusting in some other institution or means or whatever to trust entirely and completely in in Jesus alone and what he's done. And so there's this attitude of shift, but part of that is just not turning away from my self-directed way of life, but that also means turning away from then the the particular expressions of that in my life, Mm -hmm. particular expressions of different ways that sin has... um, been manifest in my life.
0: Yeah, let's clear something up here when we're talking about repentance, because depending on your church background, you might think of repentance as your actions. Right. And I I think it's important to let people know that when we're talking about repentance, we're talking about an attitude. I would say that, that the fruit of repentance is something different. We'll talk about right. that really next week quite a bit, because we're talking about then what happens once you've had that heart change and the reason it's important is because if you think that you need to actually start doing things to prove that your faith that your trust and your repentance was was true then there's this danger of thinking that you can that your works save you that the fruit mm-hmm. of your repentance saves you. Right. And it doesn't, because right. salvation, conversion,
1: is instantaneous, right? Right, that's a really good distinction to make between repentance and the fruit of repentance, mm-hmm. or what uh, the, the, the deeds that prove repentance, right. ultimately. Right. Because we, we want to make sure that people understand that repentance is this underlying fundamental shift. It's an under, underlying fundamental reorientation from self and from the world toward God. And that's going to take shape in works, but, if, but we don't want to think of repentance as, oh, you know, I need to stop doing A or doing B or, you know, and there's a sense in which then repentance will cover those things and encompass those things, but those things themselves are not really the heart of what repentance is. They're the results of repentance. So before we move on from repentance, Ross, I think it's important
0: to talk about another, th- another element here that's involved, and it's, it's the Bible uses the word conviction. Mm-hmm. Before you can repent, before you can be converted— before you can trust in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus for salvation, before you can even be born again, you, you have to be convicted of your sin. I can't turn from my sins if I'm not convicted of my sins. Where does, how does conviction come upon a person?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We talked about that when we talked about the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, the Holy Spirit is responsible for bringing conviction. Now the Holy Spirit can use a, a number of different means to bring conviction into a person's life. The Spirit can use the reading of Scripture or the preaching of Scripture to bring about conviction. That's what happened in my life back in the day. Mm. The Holy the Spirit can just do uh, can can do it, bam, just work directly within a person's heart, where suddenly you realize, oh, I, I, that was wrong and I'm wrong. Mm. There's something wrong. So the Holy Spirit can do it do it through this process of like. Um, using the consequences of our sin and of our of our choices to build up to the point where where we become awakened to the reality of the problem that we have. So, but it's got to be the Holy Spirit who's doing it through whatever means He uses, because it's a supernatural act to make us uh, be able to to recognize that we need um, we need all the things that Jesus has done for us. Yeah,
0: so I would say to the person who's listening to this, and now you're starting to think about sharing your faith with somebody, I think it's important to really consider your job is to share the gospel. Your job is to try to model the love of Christ to somebody else. But another part of your job is is to sort of pay attention to that other person that you might be discipling or mentoring. Pay attention to that person. Try to read the signs. Is that person experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can't convict another person. You right. can't force them to to believe the stuff you're talking about. But but you can share and and pay attention to the Holy Spirit's work in that person's life and and I would say to somebody who's doing that, be ready to take them across the the goal line. Yeah. Um if you notice that there's a real Holy Spirit conviction in their life and they they want to respond in faith. I think a lot of Christians don't even know what to do right. if someone's being convicted <laughs> right. of their sin, like what you just described in your life, Ross. And, and I think it's important for Christians to be ready. I mean, what a, what a joyful experience mm-hmm. to be able to lead someone else to faith in Christ. So when someone is experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, um, you, you can actually invite them to respond right. to, in faith to
1: Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's like picking the fruit when it's ripe. Right right you recognize that it's ripe and it and so you're 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 ready there to just take it as it drops off the vine so to speak and, you know but but sometimes the, the other side of that is sometimes we feel like we need to bring conviction and so we'll harp on people or like we someone in our family maybe who we think should be living a different kind of lifestyle or whatever mm-hmm. and so you know so we'll 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 push and we'll nag and so forth that we can't create we don't have the power to create conviction in someone's heart
0: which is frustrating for every parent who's out there listening, because you wish, you, you, wish you, could. <laughs> you wish you could. Now, one more thing before we move on to the, the the concept of justification, Ross. Some people might be listening to this saying, "What if I can't personally pinpoint the the moment of my conversion?" Because we keep saying that regeneration and conversion that this is instantaneous. It happens in a moment. It doesn't happen in a lifetime. But there might be some people listening to this saying, I, I don't know the day and the time when I was converted. Is that a problem? Does that mean they're not really converted?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not a problem for me. I've had, we've had these conversations many times over the years. Someone who grew up in a Christian home, maybe, um, or grew up in a, in a particular Christian culture that didn't emphasize you know, the altar call or the, you know, uh, that, that camp moment where you throw your stick in the fire or you know, the, the maybe have a different approach to things. But really, the, the measure of whether someone has been converted isn't, ne- isn't at all necessarily the kind of experience they had. There's a lot of people who've had those experiences who I don't think are genuinely converted. Mm-hmm. They went forward at an altar call, raised their hand at, you mm-hmm. know, at camp or whatever um the the measure of it is is when you start to see again the fruit of conversion the fruit of repentance in their life the the, the life chain to transformation so to me it's more important I, I would ask look do you trust in jesus alone do you recognize your need do you trust in jesus alone and they say yes well that's the application of the gospel that's the gospel and they can say yes but d- so when did you first start trusting in jesus i'm not sure there was no the campfire experience i grew into it well, at some point in time, the Holy Spirit made a, a person who's spiritually dead alive. But from the human perspective, it may not always be possible to pinpoint exactly when that occurred. Okay, so that's helpful. And again,
0: that so for the people who are listening who who maybe are a little bit OCD about this, you don't have to raise your hand every time the preacher offers for people right. to pray the prayer. Right. If you... If you've tr- I like how you said it, Ross. If you've trust, if you believe the gospel, if you've turned to Christ in faith, um, then then you're saved. And by the way, baptism is a good first step. It's a good practical outward step of this. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that. I'm sure we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Baptism doesn't save you, but for a lot of Christians, baptism is a great marker for them. Right you know we we some we baptize people who maybe were saved 20 years ago but they never got baptized that doesn't mean that they're saved at their baptism certainly they're not right. but it's a helpful mark it's kind of like a ring on our finger it's a helpful marker to say yes I have trusted even if I can't pinpoint the date
1: yeah it's a good way to just to nail it down do so you have confidence and you know you know everybody knows where you stand you know where you stand yeah. God already knew where he stood yeah that's right all right let's talk about
0: Justif, this fancy word justification, this isn't really, well, I guess it's kind of a word that we use in our, in our language, but we don't think of it spiritually. So, justifi- justification addresses sort of two different problems that human beings
1: have as a result of sin in the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first is the first, and we talked about these a couple of weeks ago, a couple of topics ago. Uh, the first is that, you know, our, our nature is corrupted by the effects of sin. We have this original, this, this guilt, I mean, this sin that attaches to us because we're polluted by this, we're, we're sinners from birth, and that problem is answered by regeneration. Um, and so we talked about that a minute ago, and we, there's also some information on that in the previous topic. So, but what I really want to talk about is the second issue where we come under guilt and con- condemnation because of our sin. We violated God's character, violated His law, and so there's a charge against us. We, we've been indicted before God with a charge, and that's where justification comes into play. Yeah, so it's really more of a legal term when we think about mm-hmm. it like this, that, that uh,
0: you know, visualize in your mind's eye standing in the court, and God's, God's uh, verdict... With justification, God's verdict, and God's the judge. It's, right. his, it's God, his decision. Yeah, God's
1: the judge. We, he, it's his law. It's his
0: right. Yeah. And his verdict now has changed because,
1: because we've been regenerated. His verdict has changed. Yeah, it changes from guilty, you know, down comes the gavel, yeah. to now, um, in Christ, God's verdict is not guilty. That's the result of justification. But how
0: can that be? I, you know, again, the person out there listening could say, "Well, how could that be? Because I don't—I I still sin. I mm-hmm. still have this." And it's true. The Bible says you still have—you have these two natures now battling within you. So how how could I not be guilty anymore? I don't understand it because I do feel
1: like I, I still sin sometimes. Yeah, we do still sin, and we have sinned. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that suddenly it's not some kind of legal fiction. God just says, oh, suddenly I, I don't notice your sin, or I'm not, I'm not counting it against you because um, I'm just pretending that you didn't do it. Um, no, the sin is actually paid for by somebody else. This is where last time we talked about the idea of substitution. And so Jesus, on the cross, paid the penalty of our sin, and so by God's grace that sin is removed through the, through the work of Christ, and so that's how we can be pardoned, that's how we can be forgiven, because somebody else Pays the price in our place on our behalf. So the concept here really is
0: this is where that the 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 best F word ever comes into play, forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That, that forgiveness now is the new word that's sort of spoken over us, those who have trusted in Jesus for mm-hmm. salvation. Yeah.
1: So um yeah. So, in, a, in the legal sense, we would use the word pardon, but in a, in a relational sense, we'd use the word forgiveness. It's the heart of the heart of Jesus' mission. It's why he came. It's the heart of his message. It's when when Jesus sends his disciples out into the world with the Great Commission. Uh, there's an emphasis in the in the biblical text about um, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, and so we're. We're forgiven because of what Jesus So, Our standing before God as judge, our standing before his law is changed, his verdict then becomes not guilty because Jesus paid the price. But it goes a step further than that because another translation
0: for the word justified is, is righteous. So the concepts of being justified and being righteous are this, essentially the same concept. In some languages, and I speak mm-hmm. Spanish. In the Spanish language, it's the same word. Yeah. And so in in, in Greek there's a, so much overlap with the word. So it's not just that we're neutral, that our that our sin is neutralized, it, it goes a step further because it says
1: that we're declared we're declared righteous right. in God's eyes. Yeah. So there's two sides of it. If we're if we're declared not guilty, that great, that puts us in a neutral position with God. It doesn't put us in a positive position. It just takes care of the, the negative problem. But biblically, beyond that um, the Bible says that we're actually declared righteous, so again, there's that word justification, we're justified, or we, we become righteous in a sense, we declared righteous in another sense, and again, that's because um, the work of Christ. So his righteousness, he never sinned, he perfectly obeyed God in every sense, his righteousness is, the, the theological word is imputed to us, or you could say it's his righteousness is counted Uh, to our ledger, so to speak, or to our account, uh, because of what he has done by virtue of our trust in him. Yeah, so if anyone is out there taking a
0: a class in seminary, you'd talk about imputed righteousness, Mm -hmm. and that is righteousness credited to our account. We Mm -hmm. didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't work for it. This we're not talking about something that Jesus gives us after a lifetime of good works. Right. I'm going to keep kind of storing up righteousness in this account over here, and someday I'm going to stand before God, and he's going to say, ah, finally you had enough. Good thing. Good thing you had 30 years on earth right. so that you could have all this righteousness stored up for you. That's actually that's not how it works, right? Otherwise, the thief on the cross... Could yeah, have been would righteous. Never
1: have succeeded. Yeah, or
0: and none of us could have.
1: None of us could. Yeah, because
0: really we're we're morally bankrupt. Every one of us is morally bankrupt. So in a moment,
1: the full righteousness of Christ is imputed to our accounts. Right. So it's not about our merit in any way. It's not about. So this is a historically the debate. The Roman Catholic view of justification is that it's kind of a both and thing. That it's Christ. We're justified at a point, but we're also justified over time through how we live. Um, and and the, at the heart of the Reformation was this idea that we're righteous by faith alone, through God's grace alone, and that it's not about any merit in us. But it's not, So it's not about merit, it's more about a standing or a position. Um, we're put into a right standing with God. Now, the, I think in our culture today, probably the an analogy that's more helpful than, to, well, how does righteousness get um, accounted to us? Well, the analogy that I think we find helpful is maybe a financial one. Because we go, oh, like, oh, somebody just could put money in my account. You know, then that money's mine. You know, somebody, so this is where, this is where the gift of righteousness, it's like God says, okay, here, I'm gonna take this righteousness of Jesus and I'm, and I'm gonna put it in, in your bank account. So that it's yours you can count on it it's there it's real um and and now it's who you are
0: and this is the language paul uses when he talks about abraham and abraham's Mm -hmm. faith so it's not it was even foreshadowed you know but way way back in genesis 12 that that it was credited to him as righteous exactly that by faith it was credited to him as righteous genesis 12 talks about that whereas the circumcision the sign of circumcision comes chapters later but yet what Paul says is actually righteousness was given to Abraham way at the beginning yeah. when he believed. And when that was believed. kind of Paul, the revelation that I think that Paul got from mm-hmm. Christ about this, that this was part of God's plan all along. It wasn't like all of a sudden God said, oh, man, this isn't working out. I thought that maybe people could earn their own righteousness and figure after generations of failure and failure in the Old Testament, nobody could do it, so now I'm going to have to come up with a plan B. Actually, imputation of righteousness was God's plan A. Exactly.
1: And so, um, so then that gives us this, this right standing. I would say one more thing about justification is that sometimes in our Christian circles, um, justification is the thing that we talk about all the time. Um, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. It's an important thing. I don't want to minimize it at all. But justification doesn't exhaust the whole meaning of salvation by a long shot. And so this idea of, of penal substitution or, or legal justification, as important as it is, it's not the only thing that constitutes salvation. It's not the only thing that we should talk about or be aware of. And sometimes we find ourselves trending in that direction.
0: Okay, so we've used some, some real theological words so far. We've talked about regeneration and conversion and justification. But Ross, this next concept I think is more understandable by the general public. And, and the Bible uses this over and over when it talks about the, the, uh, the effects of our salvation, and the word is adoption.
1: Yeah, that's not a highly technical word, right? That's a word that translates for pretty well into most of our experience. My kids are adopted, for example, so I understand. We all know people, family, who have adopted kids and, and so forth. So this becomes a little more um, um, personal, and, and it is. It's, the idea is more personal, too, because... Um, with justification, justification, as important as it is, it, it's not necessarily a, a personal thing. Um, there's no personal relationship necessarily implied between me and the judge who is giving a verdict, guilty or not guilty. You know, that judge, I maybe, I, you know, if I've, I've been in traffic court, right, the judge says pay the fine. I don't know that judge. I'll never see that judge again. But adoption makes it personal. It's, it it. it it helps balance the other ideas to say this is something that is about relationship it brings us into relationship with god
0: yeah so for for many people when they read those passages in scripture that <clears throat> describe salvation in terms of adoption that just means that means something different to them you know I, I, some people maybe are wired maybe for the uh, legal analogy mm-hmm. or for the financial analogy um, other people are wired probably more for the adoption analogy. Mm-hmm. The, the, the personal care of the Father is what is at play here when we're talking about salvation. I love that, I love that the biblical authors use all these d- different approaches to try to help us grasp the benefits
1: of salvation in our lives. Right. It's so multifaceted that really you stand in awe, really, and it, it increases your sense of... Um, gratitude to God and just amazement at what Jesus has done, to look at all these different aspects of it, it can't be captured in one simple thing. But this idea that now we're, we're children of God and we're heirs of God, um, you know, that, 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 that says that, okay, there's a whole different then kind of approach to God, um, that we can come to him, like Romans chapter 8 says we can come to him like Abba Father, an expression of intimacy, Daddy. You know, We can have this sense of confidence that, that we're in this close, intimate relationship with him.
0: Okay, so there are two more concepts we need to make sure to cover when we're talking about salvation. And this next one, I think, probably some people are thinking, why didn't we cover this earlier? But it's this, this broad, overarching concept of eternal life, that salvation does also, it doesn't just relate to all, this, all these analogies that we have, it doesn't just relate to what's going on in our thought process and in our hearts, it, it actually has real,
1: a real impact on our eternities. What does the Bible say about that? Right. So, you know, um, we saw that the consequences of sin, physical death, enters into the world, um, we're all going to die. And then spiritual death that we're all separated from god without jesus in our life so so those two things say okay what happens then when we die what happens to our relationship with god when we die and so um, often then salvation is framed in terms of eternal life and this is kind of a corollary of regeneration where this new birth what, new birth into what? New birth into a whole new kind of life, a life that starts now and that lasts into eternity. And so eternal life is, is often, most often, connected with the future, with the resurrection of believers. But it, it doesn't, it's not just limited to that, it starts now in this, in this life, we possess it now, and then it extends on into eternity as well. But I think it's important to take a minute and talk about the
0: idea of resurrection, because this was pretty fundamental for the early Church, is that, that there would be a resurrection of believers, and that was part of they viewed this as part of the overarching theme of salvation, is mm-hmm. that the resurrection of the believer
1: is a big deal. Jesus was resurrected, and we too will be resurrected. Right. And so this whole overarching idea of salvation, we talked about past, present, and future elements of it. Well, this is where the future element really comes into play that yeah if we're if salvation only means uh, it only affects us in terms of our future hope then we're missing out on on a lot of things that god wants to do in the here and now but but it can't only just affect us here and now too this future hope becomes really really important um to the believer because we live in a tough world that's this far from god yeah jesus said that this is eternal life that you may know god And
0: the one that he sent and so right eternal life like you said it 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 has this concept of eternity heaven resurrected bodies but it also like you said it starts now because we have a relationship with god now we have a relationship with the
1: father with the son even now yes some people have framed it like this it's the life of eternity that has broken in to this mortal life that we live now so we begin to experience a sense of life eternal and, it, and ultimately, then, when we're done with this world, and this world is remade by God, then, then we ex- experience it to its full forever.
0: Okay, one more concept, Ross, that we need to cover, and this one might feel a little bit more abstract, but whenever we talk about salvation, we also have to talk about what the Bible repeat, repeatedly refers to, what we would call union with Christ,
1: being united with Christ. Yeah, it's a little abstract, but it doesn't take you long reading through the New Testament to see how many times the Bible uses the phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in, in Christ Jesus, or in some variation of that idea. And so that word, in Christ, um, it, it talks about believers. That, uh, yeah, we believe in Christ, or we trust in Christ, but then it also talks about how, for example, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Well, so there's a, there's a kind of relationship that we're in him means somehow that we're encompassed or that we're um, incorporated into him in some real way um, that it says god has blessed us and chosen us in christ and he talk paul talks about my fellow workers in christ and so there's this whole sense of this sphere of relationship in which we now move in relation to christ and the way that people have talked about that is to say it's a it's some kind of a union with him, okay. But wait, there are also passages in the New Testament that say
0: that Christ is in you. Right. So which one is it, Ross? Are we in Christ or is Christ
1: in us? Yeah, this is it's two it's two angles. It's a way to look at it from um, two different perspectives. Ultimately, we're in Christ. Now, now when it says Christ in you, there's this, there's a physical sense of that even where no Jesus doesn't like. Like a little mini Jesus is not inside my heart, you know, the kids have a concept of inviting Jesus into their heart, yeah. like a little doll figure or something, but the Holy Spirit lives in us, we, we talked about that, and the Holy Spirit represents the presence of Jesus in us, with us, um, but the idea of us being in Christ, again, it's not like a physical thing, but it's the sphere in which we operate, in which we live. And so those two things go hand in hand, as kind of like two sides of the same coin. Okay, so this was topic eight, and and this is right in the middle of our
0: module on salvation. But when we talk, Ross, when we talk about salvation, this is this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, I guess you could say, is some some people are a little sloppy with the term salvation. It's I guess it's not our fault. Scripture sometimes uses this term to talk about repentance, conversion, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But there are some places in Scripture where it sort of zooms out and it, and it encompasses, in the idea of salvation, it encompasses the Christian life mm-hmm. as well. And the reason it's a pet peeve of mine, I, I want to say this now at the end of this episode. We'll probably say it again at the beginning of next week's episode because next week we're talking about the Christian life, life in Christ. And again, we're including this in the module on salvation, but I think it's important for us now to make sure that people understand we are not saying that you need to live out your Christian life in order to be saved, even though we're including this in the salvation module
1: of our series. Right, what we're really saying is that salvation, as God works in our life, is so the whole idea of salvation is that Jesus does for us what we cannot do, and we cast ourselves trusting in him for that. So we're we're just saying that that same concept applies after the initial moment of salvation to all the working out of the new life, the working out of this union with Christ. As it's worked out in our lives and the Holy Spirit is still at work, Jesus' work still applies, and Jesus' work still applies the same way, that we call on him to do in us what we can't do for ourselves, only now we're talking about the current, ongoing implications of that, where some, in one place the Bible says um, we are being saved, and so in that sense, um, that's why we can put it under this topic of salvation. And so we'll talk about that next week. Make sure to join us for Systematic
0: Theology, and again, if you want to use the resources for today's topic to talk about it with your family, with a small group, or with a mentor, you can find it all at PursueGod.org forward slash sis theo this is topic eight in the series we hope you join us for topic nine